It's good to see you today, and uh, as I look around, I see that we have uh, those that are not with us, uh, some of whom I know uh, are traveling. Um, as you look around and you see the empty seats and you uh, are reminded of faces and people that we normally worship with, I want to encourage you this week, if you will, reach out to them and uh, let them know that uh, they are part of a community uh, that uh, cares about them, that loves them, and that misses them uh, when they're not here. And uh, be an encouragement to them. If you have your Bibles, if you will, turn or scroll to First Peter chapter 2. Uh, we're going to give attention today to verses 11 through 25. It's a huge text. Uh, I want to draw out a few things. Uh, if the Lord blesses us to... Uh, uh, for, for me to remain with you uh, uh, over the course of the years, we will revisit this text because of its uh, richness. But uh, I want us to look at just a few things that I think are important for us today. As we begin, uh, I want to call our attention to our three statements that we refer to and that we ex- how we explain our existence. And uh, sometimes we refer to these as uh, these are the things that we're working toward. This characterizes who we are uh, as a church. Uh, we want to be constantly growing in our love for God. Uh, the love of God because He is supreme. So we, we love Him. We love Him supremely. We say that. And yet, uh, even when we say that, we recognize that there are tensions within our own life at times where that is not the case but in our discipleship and in our walking together, we are walking together for the purpose of continuing uh, to move toward that and recognizing His beauty uh, and His glory. We want to be growing and loving others sacrificially. Uh, we state this regularly, but I believe that it begins here in this community. I believe that's the reason that God puts us together uh, in local bodies is we learn how to love the world by loving each other. If we're not loving each other, if we're not caring for each other, if we're not concerned about each other's spiritual well-being, we are likely not going to be that way uh, in the world. And so that's important, and that's the reason that we are here encouraging each other. Uh, Paul, in writing to, uh, to the Galatians, said this, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then we're to learn to sacrifice for each other here, uh, and that that should permeate what we do in all of our relationships. And we want to grow in holiness, and we want to live distinctively in the world. Uh, We state that. Why? Well, because as we've already heard from the text last, last week, we are people who have been called, We have been charged with, we have been empowered to declare the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. So I want us to listen to the text today as we read along and with those things in mind, let's listen to how God's Word speaks to that. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only uh, to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight 
of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Would you pray with me? Father, would you help us see uh, the significance of what you have laid before us Would you take it and implant it in our hearts? Father, would you do your work in us in continuing to conform us to the image of your Son and help us to walk in his steps and follow him in Jesus' name. My aim today is to help us get a sense of God's plan for our influence in the world. You should hear that again. Our aim today is to help us get a sense of God's plan for our influence in the world. It's clear that God has providentially placed us where we are, individually and here corporately. He shaped us and is shaping us corporately to bear witness of who He is. God has always and is continuing to make Himself known. He has always made Himself known. He is continuing to make Himself known. He wants His glory displayed. Why? Because He's proud of Himself? I don't think so. Is He wanting to brag about how great He is like a Star athlete feels the need to let everyone know that he or she is the best? I don't think so. Because that motive speaks to a need for something on the part of the athlete, mostly a need to be known, respected, maybe even feared. It's about having some kind of psychological control, mostly over the opponent. God, on the other hand, has never needed affirmation. He has needed nothing from anyone. He was complete before creation. He was whole. He was satisfied. He was satisfied in himself. And you know what? He remains so. God's display of his glory is a part of his plan so that his image bearers can know who is able to complete them. Fulfill them. Satisfy them. He reveals His glory because He wants them, wants us to know the best, the perfect, the beautiful. You know how we see that? We see that in the person of Christ. We already saw last week and the week before, the Lord God calls Jesus precious and beloved. So here's how I want us to try to get to our aim. First, I want us to see the exhortation to good works. Our pointing others to the excellencies of God is tied to how we live, not just what we say. It's tied to how we live, not just what we know. A lot of folks will gather today and will sit under great teachers and they are gathering in information. And they feel like that today will be a successful day for them in the course of their gathering if they gain information. If they gain Bible facts. But if it doesn't get to the heart, then all of the facts will mean nothing if it doesn't translate into the way we relate to the world around us. I don't know how well we're doing that. I don't even know how well I'm doing that. 
but I was confronted with this in the course of the text because it really doesn't matter if I've got all my theology squared away like I think I do or maybe like you think you do. If I'm ultimately not an influence in the world, then all of that means nothing. All the books that I've ever read, it means nothing. Second, we will see the preeminent mark of grace and goodness. And I I think it is the preeminent mark of grace and goodness, and that is submission. We'll see submission. And then third, we will see how the vicarious and substitutionary atonement of Christ fuels this influence and this attitude. So that's how we will try to get to where we are going. So let's look at the exhortation of good works. Let's look in verses 11 and 12 again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As a people who are to be unified around Christ, and, and that, is, that is what we have been discussing, we have been unified around Christ and His purpose, and who have been providentially dispersed as missionaries who are to live in community with one another and in that infiltrate the culture as salt and light, we cannot disregard our attitudes, our motives, our interests, our goals, and our actions. All of those things, all of those things are in reach and in grasp of the Spirit of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit through Peter helps us see this. Peter immediately stating the fact that they providentially dispersed, remember, strangers who were scattered and who could expect suffering once did not belong to God. They were not His children. They were not His children. They were without mercy. The point is is that God intervened and acted in grace to make them His chosen people. Remember we said last week that they were chosen. They were not choice. He made them His chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of His own possession. I want you to hear that. I just I kind of fell in that even again this morning about this being possessed by God. In other words, being God's possession. What does that mean? Well, that statement rings forth with blessing, privileges, power, security, belonging, freedom, joy. Notice how it's stated in verse 11, Peter speaks to his brothers and sisters and he calls them beloved. They're beloved by God and they are beloved by Him. Peter knew what it was to be loved by Christ. He did. He had been in direct contact with Christ and Christ had loved him. He also knew what it was to be loved by his fellow disciples. Remember when Jesus gathered with them and told them that they were to love one another? And they did. Perfectly? No. But they loved one another and he knew what it was like to be loved. He knew what it was like to be cared for. And he knew what it was like to extend that kind of love and care to his brothers and sisters. And that is what he is doing now. He calls them beloved. They are dispersed. And he has been loving them as he has been writing to them. He doesn't have a bone to pick with them. He is seeking to encourage them for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of their own lives and for the sake of their joy. Our love for the broader community of believers will be no greater than the love and care that we have for one another here. Now you say, what does that have to do with the text? You'll see in a minute. Because Peter is writing to the church and he is saying that God intends you to influence this world where you are. How will you do that? You will do that lovingly. 
You'll do it lovingly. And you'll do it because you love each other. I was thinking, the genuineness of our love and care for others will be shaped here as we relate to one another. So ever how your relationships are now, okay, ever how our relationships are even now, is an example of what our relationships look like outside of here. So if, if you are isolated to some degree, uh, and if we have folks who are isolated and they are more individualistic, then that is the way that they will relate in the broader context. And, and that will be how they will operate in regards to their influence, and it will have a bearing on our influence. It will have a bearing on our influence. Now notice what else Peter says there in verse 11. Not only are they beloved, but he says this. He said, I urge you. And that word urge really should have another word in front of it. I strongly urge you. That, that's, how, that's how strong that word urge is. I strongly urge you. And then he references their position again. He said, I strongly urge you as sojourners and aliens. In other words, as those who, are, who have no home here, for those who do not belong here other than the belonging that God has placed in who you are as influencers in this world, but this world is not your home. Your citizenship is in heaven. And in a few years we'll get there. Tim got there this week. His citizenship was in heaven. And Tim got there this week. Well, there's coming a day when you and I will get there. And that time there will be much greater than this time here because that time there will be for an eternity. He said, you are here for a short time. You're not citizens of this world. By nature, listen, by nature, and here's where the supernatural comes in. By nature, by their supernatural nature, if you're here as a believer, by your supernatural nature, you have an otherworldly heart. God grants that. That's what being conformed into the image of Christ means. Is that we less and less look to this world for satisfaction. We less and less look to this world. And it is a progression, for sure. But we less and less look to this world for anything. And we along the way deny, 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 deny the world. And we say yes, 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 yes to the things of God. You're part of a different family is what he's saying. You have a different kingdom. You have a different king. You have a different perspective on life. I put it this way, that you have been as a believer and they were completely gutted from within. You ever heard of gutting a house? You go inside of the house and you gut it. You tear the walls down. You rip the floors out. You rip the bathroom fixtures out. And you go back in and then you rebuild in that house. Well, that's exactly what God does by the way of the Spirit. He guts the unbeliever. He guts the unbeliever. And then he goes back in and he rebuilds, rebuilds with his heart and his mind and in his purpose. That becomes the walls and the structure for the inside of the believer. And that's the reason that Peter says this. He says, abstain from the passions of the world. Now notice why. This is incredible. Because your soul is at stake. Now, I want, you to, I want you to make this connection. He said, right at the beginning of this text, your soul is at stake, but then I want you to go and look at verse 25, and you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your what? Souls. Your soul is at stake. Human passions are at war against your soul. Why? How? Well, 
If our desires become the desires of the world, it is going to regulate and determine and to determine how we deal with and navigate through this world. In other words, the only way that we will be genuine influencers toward pointing people to the gospel is if our, our desires are driven and made, if you will, in the image of, of God. Our desires will be the desires of God. Our heart will be the heart of God. Our mind will be the mind of God in this sense, in the Spirit of God living in us, causing us to look to Him. And in that, will determine and regulate how we influence and what we ultimately do in the course of ministry. Now look in verse 12. We read that not only are we to abstain from this, but He says that we are to maintain good conduct among the Gentiles. In other words, now he begins to talk about behavior. Before he's talking about our heart and our desires. Now he's talking about what flows out of that, our behavior, so that in the case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they may do what? They may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is Peter's clear statement as to how we make a name for God. He heard this, mind you. He heard this because he sat under Jesus' teaching. And in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, this is exactly what he heard. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good deeds and do what? And give glory to your Father in heaven. All he's doing is reaching back and being reminded of what Jesus has said. It seems that what Peter is trying to say is that our passions control our heart's desire which will in turn dictate our actions which in turn will reflect God's glory if they are consistent with God and His glory. If they are inconsistent with God and His glory, well then it won't point to the glory of God. In fact, I believe he's telling us that our good deeds are necessary for declaring God's glory. So in other words, there is the proclamation of the gospel laid down beside the way the gospel works through us regarding our life and regarding our deeds and both of them running along that same track will make a difference to some. It will bring persecution at times, but it ultimately will point people to the glory of God. God said that it would. Okay, He said that it would. And then it's, the opposite is also true. That it will not point to His glory if those things are not in keeping with who He is. He's telling us that our good deeds are necessary for declaring God's glory, for declaring His love, His goodness, His beauty. And ultimately, this is the point. His difference. The difference between Him and some other God. The difference between what comes in living for Him. The difference that is seen in our lives in the way that we love each other, the way that we are gracious toward each other, the way that we give to each other, the way that we sacrifice for each other, the way that we encourage and we do that here and in this family we do that and then we take that same thing, same attitude, same heart, and we go back into a world, even in the face of persecution, and we love, and we pray for, and we walk alongside of, and we encourage. Paul had the same thing in mind when he was writing to Titus. He said, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need, and not be unfruitful. James said it this way, religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
Paul, in writing to Ephesus, said, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what Peter is saying. Paul, in writing to Titus, said, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. He went on to say, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. We already heard from Peter But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy. How? In your conduct. We read this morning, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We'll look later on. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, for if you do good, do not fear anything that is frightening. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. We're not earning righteousness in this. We're not earning our salvation in these good works. What is being said over and over again is that our proclamation of the Gospel, our standing in the public square preaching and teaching, our knocking on doors as once we did, and saying, do you know where you're going to spend an eternity? And if you die, you're going to spend an eternity in hell. If our if that is not done in love and with good deeds coming alongside of it, it is not winsome. It's not winsome. Why press this? Because the Holy Spirit is saying that our good works, even when we are hated, even when we are being ridiculed and persecuted, will bring glory to God. And everything about the world points to serving ourselves. Preserving ourselves, exercising our rights, everything points to the individual. Our culture is a picture of this. We know that. It's about individual rights. The right to be who we want, do what we want, do it how we want it. If we decide that we want to be different than how God has planned us biologically and physically, then we have that right. That's that's the world we live in. If a person decides that they want to be seen and understood and related to as an animal, then they have that right. And it's about the individual. But our place in Christ demands that we not press for our rights, but rather press for sacrifice. In other words, rather than serve ourselves, we are to serve each other which brings us to our next point, and that is, is submission is the preeminent mark of grace and goodness. Look in verse 13. Be subject. In other words, be submissive. Talking about submission. And then we're going to look at these relationships, but notice what he says. Be submissive. Be subject for the Lord's sake to what? To every human institution every human institution the next place that peter that peter goes is to the attitude of the heart and i want you to notice as we look through this and we'll continue in it next week peter does something that 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 paul didn't do and for and for whatever reason the holy spirit stops peter and here's how he stops him peter only deals with one side of things He only deals with one side of things. 
when Paul is writing about the family, he deals with the husband and the wife. Peter targets, seems to, as much as I can tell, he targets the person and individual and the group that is most likely, most likely to be mistreated. That's who he targets. And he is speaking to them because he is trying to convey the message that mistreatment in the world is to be expected even in the course of our human relationships. And he is targeting that saying, but even then you walk in submission. So he writes, he church, he goes directly to what their heart and attitude should be. I read one author this week, and I can't remember who it was now, but I, I thought about it and jotted this down, uh, that uh, characterized how most of us approach this text. And he said, this is just the way most people have approached this text. And here's what he said. He said, they approach this text of being subject to governing authorities and being subject to one another in family relationships and those kinds of things, but particularly this part about being subject to governing authorities, uh, they immediately, when they read this text, they will immediately go to a place to try to find an opposite view in Scripture. So for instance, you should read here, as we read, notice what he says, go back up here, be subject to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And he even goes on to say, when he gets down to the servants, he said, servants, you be, you be submissive, even if your master's mean. Even if your master mistreats you. He doesn't bring up the part about we have a, there, there's a place for civil disobedience. His point is, is that our struggle is not about finding ways to stand in civil disobedience. Our struggle is, is that even when we do it, we do it not from a heart of submission. And Peter is driving home this thing that the mark of the gospel in us will be a spirit of submission. And so this author went on to say that most of the time when we're dealing with this text, we are like an inebriated man. We use the light post to lean on rather than for illumination. And I thought about that and I thought it was a kind of an interesting way to put it. Uh, is that we're kind of like the drunk man who walks out on the street at night, and he sees the light pole, and he's not looking for it to illuminate where he's going. He's propping up on it and leaning on it. Peter's saying, no, we don't want to lean. What we want to do is we want to learn to be submissive. Now remember, when Peter's writing, Nero is in power. And you know a little bit about history. You know that Nero wasn't uh, such a nice person to Christians. Uh, whether he was the one that set Rome on fire or had Rome set on fire in July of 64 A.D., no one knows. But what we do know is this, is that when the pressure was put on him to give an account for whether he did or whether he didn't, he blamed the Christians. And when he blamed the Christians, then he authorized their execution. They were being, they were being arrested. They were being killed. They were being used as... As and, and for some of you children, uh, you'll listen to this and you'll think, think this is terrible. And it was. Uh, they were put on stakes, hung up and put on stakes and set on fire like street lamps to provide light. That's, that's how much they were disregarded. But Peter gives us no out with this thing of submission. He doesn't try to balance things out for us. Remember, Peter was the one that pulled out the sword and cut the ear off of the man in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what did Jesus do? And he learned this lesson well. Peter learned this lesson well. Jesus said, no, we're not going to do it that way. And he put his ear back on. And you know that had to be a lasting impression for Peter because he's rough, rugged fisherman. 
All he knew was is let's roll our sleeves up and let's get to it. Let's tear our shirts off and let's get with it. Uh, I worked with a man back whenever I was a teenager that came from, uh, came from Tabor City, North Carolina, which is known to, was at that time known to be a pretty rough place. And they literally would have knife fights. Uh, that's just what they did. And so when anybody wanted to fight him, he'd rip his shirt off, he'd wrap it around his left arm, and he'd weld out his knife in his right hand, and he would go at it with you. And that's the way Peter was. If, let's, get, let's get down with it. But he learned a lesson that night. He learned a valuable lesson, and he learned it from Jesus. And the lesson was this, that a believer is to walk in submission and humility. He learned that suffering was the way to life. He learned that a submissive spirit to the will of God. Notice this submission here is to God. It's, and, it, and it's to God first. That's what Peter's saying. So what is submission? Well, submission is to arrange in formation under a commander. To come under in rank. To recognize who is in charge. But as I said, Peter is making this distinction. Is that we, we as believers, we fall under the commander. The Lord Jesus Christ. We fall under the ruler. We fall under Him. Because He is the one that is orchestrating, that is ruling, that is commanding, and who is empowering. And as believers, listen, and this is, this is hard for me. It's hard for me. It shouldn't be, but it is because my nature is not to be submissive and not to, be, not, not to walk in humility. We submit to Him, His calling, His demands, and His work. You see the predominant and consistent spirit and attitude of the believer is that of humility and submission. And Peter's point is that we as believers should carry ourselves at work in the marketplace and in our community in such a way that we show that we are cooperative, caring, kind, gracious, and considerate. You know what? And I'm reminded of this. Remember when we read the compelling community together? Do you know what was the distinctive mark of the church then? You know what Jamie was trying to communicate? Was that we walk in humility before each other because that is not the way of the world. And we love and care for each other because that is not the way of the world. And we put ourselves aside for the sake of others because that is not the way of the world. But it sure does look good when we see it. Because it is so inconsistent and people know that. People know that. I had a friend of mine one time. He's gone on to be with the Lord now. And he, like myself, would struggle in humility. But he always felt like in business that someone was out to get him. And I realized why. Because in business he was always out to get him. And he figured that everybody else was just like him. But when he ran into someone who wasn't that way, oh, it was noticeable. It was noticeable. And the same is true. What does submission look like? Well, Peter says, let him turn away from evil and do good and let him seek peace and pursue it. In chapter 3 and verse 11. Psalm 34.14 says, Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The psalmist said it. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Paul, writing to the Romans, says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. And he's talking about this, but it's, the point is, is that it goes out beyond that. When we sit down and weep with a lost person. 
we see them hurting and we cry with them and we rejoice with them. He says, do not be haughty. In other words, be humble. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Have you seen, do you know folks who just seem to gravitate toward those who do well, but just have a disregard for the down and out and the lowly? In other words, I want to have friends, but I want those friends to, 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 to be as smarter, smarter than me. To have more, more than me. Rather than getting down in the trenches with people is what Paul is saying. Repay no one who has done you evil with evil. So as believers, we are to be subject to the Lord in every human institution. And, and, he, and, and Peter tells us why. Look in verse 13. For the Lord's sake. Now think about how simple that is. Why do we submit? For the Lord's sake. For His sake. Why for His sake? Because it will in turn point people to Him. He gives us another reason. Look in verse 15. For it is the will of God. It's His will. In other words... It is what pleases Him. It is what is consistent with Him. Of giving, of caring, loving, being kind. Have you thought about His grace toward you lately? Have you thought about His grace toward you lately? I wonder if our spirit toward others who are in difficult places resembles the grace that God shows toward us. And you see, God is gracious out of His own heart. God is not showing grace. God is showing grace because He is gracious. He's not showing grace because anyone's shown grace to Him. And now think about the tremendous grace that He has shown us in Christ. Why would we be judgmental? Why would we we standoffish? Why would we not also be gracious? And then notice what he says. This humble submission is so radical that it draws attention. He said back up in in verse verse 12, so that they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That may be the last day, may be the day of judgment. It could be the day that God comes to them by grace and calls them uh, to their day of awakening and day of life. But notice what else he says. He goes on there. He said, it's the will of God by doing good that you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And that they would see this work and recognize that even in the midst of all of this, they may hate you, they may dislike you, but my goodness, It points to something different, something that is attractive. Now, who is the greatest attraction? Christ Himself. What does Peter have to say? We'll look at what he says beginning in verse 21. For to this you have been called, what? This this submission... You have been called to this submission, all of this, whether you be a servant, whether it has to do with the government, and he'll later go on and talk about other relationships. All of this, all of this, this is the central piece. You've been called the Christ because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, an example so that you might follow in His steps. Christ's actions serve as an example for us. It does more than that. And we're going to look at what more it does. But His, ex- but his suffering sh- gives us an example. And then what are we told? So that we might follow in His steps. What steps? Steps of suffering. Steps of submission. Steps of grace. Steps of caring. That we follow in that. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 2. And we hear this text. But this is just a a perfect picture. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Hear that? Count them, count them more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Hear the suffering, hear the submission, hear the sacrifice, hear the grace, hear the love. Therefore God has highly exalted Him. Suffering comes before exaltation. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, we are to follow Christ's example. But what does that mean? Well, it means that we submit, we serve, we sacrifice, and we suffer if necessary. But notice what else. Look there in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We hear it again. We hear it again. He bears our sins. What are the implications of this? Well, the first implication is is that he dies for our sins. He died for our sins. Our sins of the past, our present sins, our future sins. He dies for them. In his death, every sin of ours, those who have trusted him, has been paid for and they have been declared forgiven. All of our sins, the seen, and we've sinned a lot where people have seen us, and we have sinned where no one has seen us. They have been paid for and forgiven. I want you to think about this in the context of our relationship in this community. It means that we forgive and we release all past offenses. That's what Christ did on the cross. That's what His work did. And therefore, as we follow in His steps, that's what we do. We forgive each other. We forgive others. We walk in a spirit of grace and kindness and care. That's what, that's, that's, that's what makes this body attractive. That's what makes the body attractive. Our witness in this world, it will be no more impactful than our humility and submission to one another in our forgiveness, in our care, and in our encouragement to one another. The people get themselves in messes? Yes, they do. Do they immediately turn and walk rightly in them? Most of the time, they don't. I haven't. Maybe you haven't. But we're forgiven. And therefore we should forgive. What makes a local church attractive? Is it the children's ministry facility? Is it the great band and the great music? Is it the most hip youth pastor? It is for a consumer. It's not for a person who's committed to community. See, a person who's committed to community and the life of the body, you know what we do? We look at each other when we're not attractive and we say, I love you anyway. 
your mind. When I act the biggest fool, it doesn't matter. We come alongside of each other and we grab each other up and we are not looking to beat down. We are looking to encourage and to help. This reflects the glory of God, the richness of our relationships. And then I want you to notice this. Notice that not only does He atone for our sin, but notice what else He does. Look. He does so, and in that forgiveness and in that work, there is something else that happens that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, we have been healed. He's not talking about physical healing here. He's talking about spiritual healing. We die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what takes place in the life of a believer. What does that do? Well, if we look back up, it points to the fact that in verse 16, we live as people who are free. Free from the guilt of sin. Free from the guilt of sin. Free from the heaviness of sin. Free from the bondage of sin. And free to do what? And then free to live in a way that brings tremendous blessing and joy not only to ourselves, but to the world that we live in. And therein rests the influence that points people to the glory of God. Who are you and who are we and is that who we are? People of submission and humility. I hope so. I want us to be. God intends for us to be. That's what He is called us to be. That's what He has saved us to be. We're going to come to the table uh, and we're going to see again this picture of the beauty and the wonder of God in the sacrifice of Christ and His death for our sin. Where He does what? He does not seek to preserve Himself. He seeks to give Himself, and He does, even to the point of death. He walked in humility and submission in that way. Why? To bear our sins, which then gives us an example of what it means to walk in His steps.